Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. One of the core teachings of yoga is dukkha, which most people translate as suffering or being unsatisfied or stress. But really the heart of dukkha is the inability to be content. And the inability to be content for most of us means not knowing what nourishes us and not being connected to what nourishes us. And in a, a sped up world, in a world where so many of us are doing uh, jobs or are involved in livelihoods that don't have a lot of meaning, um, I think what all of us crave is to feel connected. Connected to ourselves and connected to others. And somehow, even when we have good intentions, we can so easily get lost because we've been used to living in a way where we're not being nourished. Or we are uh, involved in false forms of nourishment where we think we're being nourished and the image on the outside is that we're being nourished. But really, we're not being nourished, and we know it because stress is increasing, um, feelings of loneliness and anxiety increase, and we experience uh, burnout. The new medical term for burnout is uh, vital exhaustion, <laughs> which I like more, actually. Or we're out in the world doing good, but we're not taking care of ourselves. Or we're out in the world doing good, and we've lost track of what good is. Because the world is imperfect, and it's complicated, and we think it's out there. And the other core teaching of yoga is karma. That everything that we do exists in a matrix of causality. That every action you take has an effect. And that you can't control the consequence of your actions. And the only thing you really have control over 
is the motivation in your actions, your intention. But you cannot control the outcome. And I think for a lot of you who are building yoga studios, community centers, working in prisons, or helping others in any way, um, one of the ways we get exhausted is by being attached to the outcome. And in helping work, there, there are three ways that we can identify uh, the uh, intention in our actions. The first is helping, the second is fixing, and the third is serving. When you go into the world and you try and help, you see the world as weak. When you try and help others, it usually feels like you have something that you can do for someone that is weak, and you'll help them. And then they will overcome whatever form of suffering they're experiencing. And this is doubly difficult if you're getting paid for it. <laughs> if you're a psychotherapist, if you're a yoga teacher, if you're receiving money, then it's, it, there's a kind of pressure that you really need to help people. And for those of you who do helping work in larger communities like I do, now that work is being evaluated. And so when you have those PhD students around evaluating what you're doing, it feels like you, you better help people. <laughs> the second is fixing. When you, when you try and fix the world, you, you experience the world as broken. And there's this unconscious drive, or I would say this unconscious lens, I think, to see that the world is broken. And when we see the world is broken, we usually see ourselves as broken. Because how you see the world and how you see yourself are mutually dependent. You can't separate them. When you're experiencing yourself as whole, the world looks whole. And when you experience yourself as broken, you recognize the brokenness in others. When you make your life into a practice or a commitment to peacemaking, to making peace in your body, to making peace in your sacrum, to making peace in your family, to making peace in the way you relate to your own body, when you make peace with your siblings and with your lovers and with your friends and with all creatures, you're not helping and you're not fixing, you're serving. And the paradox in dukkha is that when we're serving, we're happy. Selfish happiness is an oxymoron. There is no such thing as selfish happiness. So many of us, you know, we get caught in these ideas that if I just have this right kind of car and my family looks this right kind of way, then uh, I'll be happy. 
And I'm not going to go too far, because most of you know, know this story, even though you're living it every day. <laughs> um, but, but, but deeper than that is when we're motivated to find happiness in a way where our happiness is about us, what we're left with is actually anxiety. A low-grade anxiety, because what that kind of happiness creates psychologically is separation separation from others and then we can't be fully happy because our practice is not including others and so moksha or liberation or freedom or enlightenment is the ultimate cognitive dissonance where on the one hand you cultivate your own equanimity and happiness and in the other hand, other people are suffering. And if you really understand how we're interconnected, then you can't be fully free if other people are not free. And so you go to work serving others. And in serving others, you guarantee their freedom. And by protecting their awakening, you wake up. Does this make sense? Yes. By serving others, we feel good. We feel really good. But I want to talk about serving others in the right way, where we're not helping and we're not fixing. The world is not this broken machine that we need to put back together again, like the way the Americans are rebuilding their economic system in the same model as the one that just completely failed and caused so much, not just economic devastation, we can all cite the statistics of what's happening in the finance world, but people losing their homes, people losing their jobs and not being able to find jobs now for years. And the anxiety that creates when you're a parent and you can't provide for your kids. One in four American children are on food stamps. One in four. To have the confidence that we can really drop down into our bodies and to feel our capacity for violence, for greed, for confusion, and to start working at that deep level. This is the intimacy that yoga is, is to recognize these patterns in ourselves. And then as we start to work with those patterns, to also see them in the world, in institutions, in our families. And then to work both the inner and outer simultaneously. Patanjali, when he talks about nonviolence, he, he uses the word ahimsa, which most people translate as nonviolence or not killing. But what ahimsa really means when we, when we think about it in terms of karma is not living at the expense of other life. Not living at the expense of other creatures. And that means to heal the parts of ourselves that we're exploiting 
the parts of ourselves we don't relate to, all the parts in our bodies that are not communicating with each other, and to go out in our communities and to help heal the parts that are not communicating with each other. So if we're all connected, and if healing is intimacy, then if there is one 15-year-old behind bars, you're not free. You may feel pleasure, and you may feel happy, but if there is a 15-year-old behind bars that we are not serving, then we're not free. Because our society is not awake enough to learn how to work with that 15-year-old, no matter what they've done. No matter what they've done, to really know that samadhi or integration is to understand the conditions of that kid's life and to know that if you were in those conditions, you would have done exactly the same thing. That's non-separation. And, and, and to, to move on, because we see that this, 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 this society based on retributive justice is creating more harm than good. Imagine if we could turn prisons into monasteries, where you go to prison and you undertake to train your heart. And then the people coming out of prison are teaching us about our prisons. And then they become the monks and the nuns and the teachers in our culture. Why? Because they know about suffering. And the difference is, because they don't have a lot of distraction, maybe they could teach us how we can work with our suffering. Because they've been in the monastery. Some of them, since they were little, little kids. In the early 70s, the assistant to Trungpa Rinpoche in Colorado and in Halifax was dealing drugs. He was going down to South America, he was buying drugs, cocaine, he was selling it in the United States. And you can imagine in the late 60s and early 70s, this is an okay thing to do. Because, you know, Buddhist practice uh, and being a yogi was like, it's, it was countercultural. So to be dealing drugs on the side, it's like us against them, it's, you can understand it. And uh, he got caught. And uh, in 1970, they started the kingpin rules in the United States. And he was sent to prison uh, without parole. Uh, his sentence was going to be 30 years. 30 years for a young kid in his 20s. His name's Fleet Mall. And when he got to prison, everyone in the prison was dying. Because where did AIDS, where did AIDS first show up? In North America? In prisons, with men in prisons. And the prisoners were dying like flies. And he didn't know how to survive in prison. So what did he do? He's a, he's a Buddhist meditator. He's going to survive in prison. So what, he started building hospices, like little hospice corners of the prison, and taking care of the dying men. And this earned him some respect. So he's out of prison now. And his work now is to uh, build hospices in prisons. And now, 17 years later, Every prison in the United States has to give health care and hospice care to their prisoners at the same level as the community.
And this is his work, is to come out of prison as if you've come out of a monastery and to go to work serving. And this is the kind of thing we can do. Look who's in this room. Imagine what we can do together. To understand that the main cause of dukkha or our inability to be happy is that we're living lives that are exhausted by addiction and self-centeredness. And that part of the cure is not just sitting on the cushion stewing. <laughs> is not just working your acetabulum so that it's smooth. <laughs> but it's also going to work in your neighborhood to pick battles that are small enough to win and big enough to really matter. And maybe the first battle for some of us, I know my first battle in the Dharma was just being able to get out of bed in the morning. I started practicing because I was depressed and I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. And for me, the idea of serving was just serving these legs so they could get out of bed in the morning. And uh, there is a point, though, where the work on ourselves then has to translate. And anybody who says that you can't take action in the world until you're enlightened, mm -hmm. this is a model of, of spiritual practice that is outdated, absurd, and not helpful. In our culture, at a time where people really need us, a monk once asked Basho, what is your practice? And he responded, whatever's needed in this moment, what's needed? So I want to tell you a little bit about burnout because I think burnout for many of us is something that we don't recognize. The, the first form of burnout is vital exhaustion. And it's caused by internalized beliefs that you need to go fix others. Has anyone ever tried to fix like their parents? <laughs> Institutional demands carrying too heavy a burden and family systems. Family systems that make us think that we're not doing enough and internalized family systems that make us feel like we are not doing enough. And this is the first cause of vital exhaustion. Again, people are nodding. I think people know, know this one. Um, the second is uh, secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. And I think most people think that secondary trauma is when you've been traumatized and you're in a situation that re-traumatizes you. But, but this is not true. Secondary trauma can happen if you have no history of trauma. In a situation where there's violence, usually the people who are most traumatized are the witnesses. The people going into prisons and hearing the stories of the lives of the young boys and girls in those prisons, um, can become exhausted 
and traumatized. Uh, and they replay those stories over and over. Um, and they don't know how to metabolize those stories. Um, those of you who teach in yoga studios where you actually have relationships with your students, when you start really hearing why people are coming, you know, in psychotherapy, we call it the presenting symptom. The presenting symptom is, I need some exercise, work is really stressful, and uh, my hamstrings are tight. <laughs> but when you really make relationships with people, you find out they're coming because they're suffering. They're not happy. If, they're not, if they were content, they wouldn't be coming, probably. Um, and when you really open through empathy and what we call uh, mirror neurons uh, with the people who are traumatized, we can easily become traumatized uh, vicariously. And um, this is the problem with empathy. The problem with empathy is that uh, we can empathize with people's joy or sorrow neurologically. This is, neuroscientists love this stuff right now. And um, the problem with empathy is that there's not a clear distinction between self and other. You just feel someone's sorrow and you just feel someone's joy. But you're merged with them in empathy. And empathy is the number one cause of burnout. I spent some time this summer with Matthew Ricard, who is, uh, Time Magazine just called him the happiest man on earth. Because, uh, you know, they went to the Dalai Lama and they said, who's the happiest person we want to measure them? And he said, Matthew. Um, and he speaks English. <laughs> and so they hooked him up and, they, and the first thing that they did with him was they uh, uh, gave him pictures of, uh, and, and situations that he would uh, imagine of, you know, coming across his mother in a car accident. Or, you know, images of war. And all he needed to do was to merge with the situation and to feel it. And they were measuring his levels of empathy. And at the end of the morning, he was totally exhausted and had to go rest for a couple days. He was burnt out. We call this empathy fatigue. And empathy is not connection, it's merger. Compassion is when you feel what you feel in empathy, but you're separate because you're taking care of yourself. There's a healthy boundary. You have an ego. This idea of you know, getting rid of your ego is a recipe for psychosis and burnout. <laughs> and the only people I've ever met who don't have an ego are institutionalized. So that this idea, you know, I think right now we have this kind of post-colonial idea that you either uh, need a strong ego or you need to get rid of your ego. But like in traditional teachings, it's never talked about like that. This idea of like getting rid of your ego is totally absurd. Your ego is a, is a, is a hilarious. It's the source of your humor. Why would you get rid of it? It's, it's one of your great assets. Um, so, so I'm not going to go too far with that, but the point is, is that, that one of the ways we burn out is by not having an ego. This is pathological altruism. It's reading too many stories about saints and trying to live in an idealistic way. 
And, and saints, some of them are realized beings that can have a level of altruism that we can't reach. And we need to know our limits or you get vicarious trauma. Because their level of altruism for most of us would be pathological. Where we're not taking care of ourselves. And if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. You take care of this body and you're taking care of the earth. And you take care of the earth and you take care of this body. Imperfectly. The third form of burnout is what I want to call moral distress, which is being overloaded because of systematic imbalance. These are tho th this is those of us who are working in hospitals where the ethics of the hospital does not match our internal moral compass. We're working for oil companies where the, the motivation for the shareholders does not match our internal commitment to not causing harm. And we keep doing it because we're scared. And we keep doing it because we're making money. And we keep doing it because we're addicted to the persona that our profession um, affords us at the dinner table with our family who are so proud of us for being lawyers and doctors and surgeons and CEOs and money makers. But like traditionally yoga, yogis were drop-ins where they dropped out of the culture to drop in to the culture in a deeper way. And they went to these ashrams which are like uh, Nowadays, you go to ashrams and you get free lunches. Being, like being a shramana is being a vacationer, where you're on a permanent vacation. And you try it here. Go to Trinity Bellwoods Park for the day. Go hang out with homeless people and ask the Bank of Montreal for a free lunch. And you're not going to get it. And actually, the people who are coming to teacher trainings and the people who are coming to psychotherapy offices and the people who are coming to hospitals and prisons which are dukkha magnets, are people who are capitalist fallouts. They can't produce and consume at the level we want them to produce and consume, and they're being burnt out. And the people who are trying to help are being burnt out because of moral distress. Because we're working in situations where our values don't match the institution's values. And this is a valid form of burnout. All the corrections officers, think about those corrections officers every day going into the prisons and being changed. They are being changed by the people with whom they're working. And some of them are so bored. And if you've ever been in prison, it's so loud. And at some level, those corrections officers, they're being burnt out by moral distress. They see how prisoners are being treated. But you know what? In the culture, in the correctional culture, you can't really change so easy because there's pressure. And this leads to moral outrage where people quit their jobs and they're angry 
and then they stew in their anger and they create us and them, which is the most unhelpful uh, frame of mind for yoga. Number four, um, horizontal hostility. This is a new one in the literature. You find this mostly in the nursing literature. Horizontal hostility. In the United States, 28% of nurses quit their jobs because of horizontal hostility. This is a form of burnout where your peers marginalize you. And in the passive-aggressive world of yoga studios, I would say this is the number one cause of frustration is the inability to communicate in a studio culture with your peers where you get pressured to leave or to teach in a certain way or to not communicate your ideals or to share your beliefs and learn from others. And the last one is structural violence. Um, systems that discriminate against whole groups of people. Uh, if you're gay, if you're fat, if you're skinny, if you're queer uh, in a way where it's not being hidden. Um, I could go on and on. But, you know, and I, and I want to go deeper in this, but I won't. But, but one thing I will say is that one of the ways this burnout happens is that, you know, we think of, for those of you who study the Dharma, you know that the, one of the things that keeps karma going are the three poisons. Uh, greed, hatred, and confusion or delusion. And we think of those things as inside of us, don't we? I, th I think most of us. But all of those poisons are also institutionalized. What keeps corporations going are these poisons. So it's not enough just to work on the poisons inside us. We have to work on systematic toxicity that leads to burnout. So I don't know how many of you are relating to, to this. Do, do some of you relate to this, this kind of burnout? You might wonder, why am I going through this? And what does this have to do with Patanjali? But what I'm doing is, is I'm trying to speak in contemporary terms about dukkha, about stress and feelings of lack that are caused not just from inside of us or from past lives, but are caused by the institutions that we've made. So, so that you can see that some of your, your difficulty is not just in you, but it's all around us. And our work has to happen in both levels. And in the Buddha's time and in Patanjali's time, the individual was in such a thick social fabric that the focus of their teachings was on the individual. Because it was a given that we were all interconnected. But now it's exactly the opposite. What we need to emphasize is not the individual, but the social fabric. The, and I would add the ecological fabric that nourishes us. Because all we are 
is uh, social and ecological uh, conditions. And there is a saying, you know, that there are 84,000 dharmas. And my challenge to you is, if there are 84,000 dharmas, or 84,000 practice doors, all you need to do is enter one. Just to enter one. To really enter your life. And when you enter your life, you enter the lives of others. You know, one of, the, one of my favorite sentences in all spiritual teachings is the uh, third or fourth line of the Yoga Sutra, where Patanjali says, Tada drashtuhu svarupe avastanam. Then, therefore, tada, therefore, drashtuhu, the one who sees, not the seer like capital S, seer, there are other words for that, Atman, Jiva, whatever. But drashtuhu, seeing, which is a metaphor, um, it's where we get the word darshan, which means uh, uh, to look, or drishti, to gaze. Um, swa, self, rupa, form, avastanam, abides within. Let me break that down. Uh, when, when you practice yoga, in the first sentence, and, and, and you're not identifying with everything that moves through your awareness, then the one who is seeing and feeling and thinking and breathing and listening and acting and working abides in their own self-form. This is a disappointment for those of you who are into spirituality. Because what he's supposed to say in that sentence is when you're not identified with everything that moves through your life, you have an awakening and you become God and you become connected to all the virgins and you suddenly become one with everything and you can be vegan forever. And uh, you're awake, menopause ends, uh, migraine headaches end, and, and, and you're one with everything. And that's not what he says. That's not what he says. He says, then you abide in your form. But what? Abide in my form. I'm trying to, the reason why I came here is because of my form. And he's saying, you get to abide in this. But I think for most of us, I don't want to abide in this. I came to this practice because I, I want to get out of this. I want to be free from this. And Patanjali says, no. That your ego and your idiosyncrasies and your addictions and everything that you think of as me, you fully enter that and you fully embody that. And that's why you start with your body. And the goal is to abide fully in your body. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, he says the same thing. To be in the body as a body. Nowhere does he say you leave your body. Nowhere does Patanjali say you get rid of your ego. To fully embrace 
this storytelling mechanism we call the ego that gets us into so much trouble and that gets us out of trouble. You don't want to walk out onto the street and be one with a streetcar <laughs> because you'll get run over. We are not one completely. When I eat breakfast, your stomach does not get filled up. We're, we're separate. When I pick my nose, your nose doesn't, and I don't want you to pick my nose, it's my, my nose, you know. There's a place where I end and you start. And though that is linguistic and conceptual and relative, it exists. And for Patanjali, we embrace that. We don't get rid of it. And, and the more we practice, the more our ego becomes porous, where we watch it operating, from moment to moment, doing its ridiculous inflated and deflated activities, and we embrace it. And then you become one with your ego, which is not even yours, actually. And then you see what your life is. Cancer is not my life. Anger is not my life. The years I spent in prison is not my life. The years I've been institutionalized is not my, well, yes it is. All of that is your life. To be one with all these parts of our lives we don't want to be one with. And there's this current fad, that's maybe started in the 50s, to get rid of your ego. And that is a kind of fragmentation and scapegoating that nowadays we call spiritual bypassing. Where you don't fully avastanam, abide in, embody your whole life. Um, consider a fish. A fish swims and it swims in the ocean and it knows its territory. Or a bird. A bird flies in the sky and it knows its territory. I have never met a fish that wants to be a bird. <laughs> a, a fish swimming is fully a fish. Has anyone ever seen a whale dive? When a whale is diving, for a second, it looks like it wants to be a bird. But if you ever look closely at a whale diving, they have like a little smile. <laughs> and a whale diving is perfectly a whale diving. What does it mean to be a fish? Swimming. What's a bird? Flying. What is a sentient being? What are you? For a fish to fully know its field is to know what nourishes it. And for a bird to fully know its territory and not go into the tree's territory, a, a, a bird trying to be a tree is a whole problem, <laughs> is for the bird to really know what nourishes it. For you to be a fully functioning, creative, eccentric, engaged citizen is to know what nourishes you. To really be connected to what nourishes you. And in the asana practice, 
in our meditation practice. We have formal techniques to connect with how we feel, to connect with the pause at the end of our exhale, the mula, the root bond that connects the chitta, our attention span, and the prana, the energy of our breath, as feeling tone in the core of the body. And these practices over time start to develop equanimity, non-reactivity, and kindness and patience in us. And the reason why we deepen our formal practice of meditation, of pranayama, of asana, is so that we can really work with the emotional states and turbulent thoughts that make us suffer personally. So that inside a yoga posture, there's something real going on that you can then use to affect change in the world around you. So that you can be one with cancer. So that you can be one with your prison cell, whatever that is. So that you can be one with your depression. That's yoga. Yoga is not trying to become one with something other than what's right here. It's being fully yoked to your life. And then the paradox of this, which is what earlier I called cognitive dissonance, is that you become more sensitive and more tender and you start to feel the suffering of others. And you know, most people, when they just come in off the street and they're not in tune with their interconnectedness, they hear about dukkha and they think this is the most pessimistic philosophy I've ever heard. And so I'm just gonna, you know, do Pilates and, and, and try and hang out at Urban Herbivore as much as I can and, and just f feel good. And when you reach a stage of maturity in your practice where you realize that interconnectedness is more valuable than just feeling good, then your practice starts taking off because it starts including other creatures. So when Roshi writes, all beings are flowers blooming in a blooming universe. All beings are flowers blooming in a blooming universe. Patanjali says it a different way. He says, when you are grounded in nonviolence, you create the conditions for others to let go of their hostility. They're both saying something here about interconnectedness, aren't they? We think, oh, when I'm grounded in nonviolence, then I'm going to get enlightened. Then it benefits me. When I'm not living at the expense of others, then I, I get some merit, and then I'm really spiritual, and then I can start, you know, teaching, and then I can start a, a brand and start marketing my <laughs> yoga teachings. But that's not what Patanjali says. He says, when you're fully grounded in not living at the expense of others, 
then you create an atmosphere, we can translate this, when you create a vibe where others can let go of their hostility. If we keep sending people to prison, we're not creating an environment where the prisoners can let go of their hostility. If we keep building nuclear weapons, we can't go into other countries and tell them to stop building nuclear weapons. What kind of logic is this? You have to stop dealing in nuclear arms, but we're going to keep producing them. We're going to take uranium from Saskatchewan, we're going to sell it to India and North Korea so they can build nuclear power plants, so they can meet the Kyoto Protocol that we can't even meet. Um, but you guys, uh, you, once you get the uranium, you're not allowed to really do anything with it. And we're going we're gonna to send people to check to make sure you're not doing anything with it. It's the same logic as this person caused a crime, let's send them away. How many people, how many young people in prison are suffering from mental illness? So many people in prison are, are um, really, really suffering. And um, when you send them away, the problem doesn't go away. It's like nowadays we say we're in the information age. Has anyone heard this term? The, what? <laughs> These little iPhones everybody has, they're running off coal. The difference is you just can't see the coal, the coal anymore, or they're running off nuclear power, and so we don't, we don't see the pollution. But we're living in the industrial age still. We're not in the, if you think you're in the information age, you live in a realm of privilege where you need to just go, go swim in Lake Ontario. <laughs> we live in the industrial age. The point is, is that Karma reminds us that we're so interconnected and that everything you do matters. When you come here and you sit still and you pay attention, you're planting seeds, sanskaras, neurologically, vasanas, in your mind and body so that you can cultivate equanimity. This gathering is a is a form of social action because we're being still. And we're planting stillness in the mind, in the body, and in the body politic. You can't separate. You know in the 60s it said the personal is political. New Leaf Yoga is a, a provider of health care. They're a provider of balance, but not just to the people behind bars, to us. Because in their marketing, they're reminding us about the people we're sending away that we don't see. And they are a political organization. And over time, I hope this organization grows so that they start taking care of the correctional officers. And they start taking care of the communities 
these kids leave prison and they're in your community. Do you know them? I don't care what your politics are about soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan, but they also come back into your community. And they're coming back to your community really suffering. So New Leaf Yoga needs to become an advocacy group. But not just for the people in the prisons, but for us. So we let those prisoners know that we are connected to them. They're not alone. And we also let the corrections officers know that we're with them. And the administration and the communities until there's no separation between those serving and those served. And that no separation is yoga, is intimacy. And it's really possible. It's really possible. Uh, I've been obsessed this, this summer because uh, I've been writing about, um, in 1968, I guess it was, um, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's students uh, immolated himself. Some of you might remember, um, lit himself on fire to protest the war in Vietnam. And people, you know, academics are still debating this. And a year later, some of you might know that um, Thich Nhat Hanh nominated Martin Luther King for the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, I think what's not known is that Martin Luther King then nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Peace, Nobel Peace Prize. And um, so this summer I've been, uh, I'm working on a new book and, and I've been obsessed with Martin Luther King's speeches. And uh, everybody knows that I have a dream speech, some of you off by heart maybe. But actually the speech that he talks about community, which is my favorite, is from Riverside Church in New York City. And um, he ends the speech by saying, we can all be great because we can all serve. All of us can be great because we can all serve. Not because you have a PhD. Not because your studio is the most popular. Not because you finally got a Range Rover or whatever. Sorry if you have a... If you came here in a V8. <laughs> we can all be great because we can all serve. But you can't serve if you're not taking care of yourself. You can't serve if you're suffering from structural violence, from horizontal violence, from internalized ideas that you're not doing enough. You have to know what you can do and go to work. And for some of us, we have to really, this is what we're going to do this afternoon, is to be connected to what nourishes us and where we need healing personally. And then we're going to talk about how yoga has many tools, not just headstands, to really help us. A headstand is not going to help prisoners. Sorry. More 108 sun salutations every day may raise some money, but it's not going to help you communicate with people you don't get along with. 
It's not going to give you those skills. It's absurd. We need lots of tools. And the yoga tradition has a lot of tools, and we're going to explore many of them this afternoon. Because we need to serve. It makes us joyful. It gives us virya, energy. I don't know if any of you have looked at my schedule. It scares me when I look at my website. And people say, like, how do you have enough energy to... to this week has been... Uh, I've been in rooms like this doing this since Tuesday. And uh, I get so much energy. Because I feel like I, we're just... I'm matchmaking or something. And that uh, what's happening is, is we can develop a grassroots democratic yoga community that crosses ecumenical boundaries, that is secular. In other words, it's rooted in the seculum, in this time, this time, a yoga that is responding to this time. A, 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 a prison dharma, a hospital dharma, so that our yoga studios become community centers where we're reaching out to the people who need to be in touch with their body and we develop in our yoga community centers a core of practitioners that are training to be peacemakers by really learning what meditation is, by learning how to be still in a very rigorous way, by learning traditional teachings of pranayama and asana to go deep into the body so they can know the body as a body. A core in every yoga studio of monks and nuns who are peacemakers, who are waking up and then we take that energy because a community center is like a monastery, a modern day monastery, and then we take that energy and we use it on Sunday morning to just start cooking. And if you have a kitchen in your yoga studio and you start making breakfast, people will start coming. And we use that studio to, to start reaching beyond the boundaries of the people who can afford to come. So, so that we can have times where there are things, that events where it doesn't cost any money, movie nights, childcare, Courses in money management and contraception, sex ed. What does sex ed mean when it's grounded in the principle of not causing harm? What does learning how to manage money mean when it's grounded in the principle of non-greed? See, we can put these yoga tools to work in our communities so that we can wake up, not just individually, but as a culture. And what could be more exciting? It's like, woo! This is amazing. But when we keep operating out of individual happiness, we get exhausted because we can't do it. I'm trying to be so happy. I'm doing all these things to get happy. Don't worry, I'm getting happy. Uh, but I, and I'm showing you that I'm happy, but I'm not really getting happy because my life is getting so small because all I'm focusing on is my happiness and my diet and my weight and, and the 
yoga clothes are so expensive. So I can't quit my job because I can't even afford to have the right outfit or whatever. The last thing I'll say is that I also don't want to make this sound like you just go into the world and fix. So this was the burnout matrix, remember? That finds really good teachers. Don't make up your own practice. Find good teachers and, and put in some years with them. Find a community, and if you can't, start one. And really practice rigorously. So that at the heart of this, we are really training, like, you know, sometimes I, when I read texts like the Pali Canon, I hear about like the Buddha entering a city, and I picture like a thousand monks in robes walking into a city, and, and I, they, to me, that's like a military, a nonviolent military. I mean, can we start that, really? To, to really have a very deep practice so that there's something real going on in your life. Because the problem with left-wing politics this century has been we've been replacing one band of thugs with another. And the problem with the Buddhists and the yogis is that the Catholics and the Jews are feeding more people and clothing more people. And now the yogis have to do this too. We have to feed people, we have to clothe people, we have to stop sending them to prison. It's not helping us or them. But that that kind of action is rooted in a practice where we're really taking care of ourselves. Where we're not in political movements where we're burning out and we're angry at each other. We're taking our anger and we're really funneling it through our practice so that we can, we can make change in a culture that's so imbalanced, our values are so upside down, inside out. Committing to practice means committing to resistance. Uh, because the resistance to practice, I don't know about any of you, but if you don't have resistance in your practice, I think you need some advice about what to practice. <laughs> Because there's a natural resistance built into practice, which is the resistance to change. And that resistance to practice should always be there. Because it shows us that we're changing. And if our practice is not really changing us, then there's no resistance, you see? And the same is true in our culture. For us to start changing yoga studio models, to change prison models, there will be resistance. And when we start feeling the resistance, we need to get excited because this is when something's really working. And uh, this is inspiring and the resistance is a fuel, it's friction, it's a fuel uh, to generate kindness so that our practice becomes like a kindness gymnasium <laughs> where we're working the kindness muscle so that it, it's there for us when the hard times show up. There's, there's a part of all of us that doesn't want to change. 
And so Patanjali identifies this and calls this abhyasa and vairagya, which means practice and non-attachment. The practice of non-attachment. And then practicing non-attachment to your practice of non-attachment. <laughs> and then practicing non-attachment to your practice of non-attachment to your practice of non-attachment. And then being really attached to that. And non-attachment means not getting stirred up. And when we're not stirred up, it means we're fully engaged. So non-attachment is samadhi. It's the integration, sam, which is where we get the word calm in English, like community, adi, one. The, the integration, coming together as one, samadhi is community. It's the falling away of us and them, uh, subject and object. And um, practicing non-attachment means not clinging to your view, not being attached to your particular position, being able to surrender your position, to let go so you can really listen. And any of you who've ever done any kind of activism, who've been burnt out by it. I once asked Ted why he started Moksha Yoga. And he said, oh, well, I was burnt out by the activist person who I became. And I needed to look after myself. Not clinging to an outcome, not clinging to your position, opens you up so that you can really drashtuhu, see Vidya, see how things are. And then you're engaged. And I know it sounds like a paradox. Non-attachment is engagement. But we all know that when we're not clinging to the way we need things to be, we're more engaged as parents, as kids. When we're not attached to our mother and father being a mother and a father, then we can be totally engaged with them. When you surrender and you let go of needing your mother to be a mother, then you can start to see her. You can see a person there underneath all that scaffolding you've been attached to all these years. And your heart can open and then you're engaged. And this is intimacy, this is yoga, this is samadhi, this is community, this is connection, this is revolution. And what we're resisting is any place in our body and our culture where things are fixed and they're stuck and they're not fluid. And we resist that and that resistance is yoga. And how do you resist? By letting go. And how do you let go? By action. People often say to me, well, like, is this going to help? And, I, and my response is like, I don't know. But because it's a new action, let, there will be a result. So, so let's see. Let's see. And so I vow to stop sending people to prisons. Can we make this a vow? And let's vow for these people who are in prison to, 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 
get some of our attention. I don't mean like going to the communities and meeting with them and sitting with them and working with them necessarily, but in your daily life, um, to not live in a way that supports a system that keeps putting people in jail. And maybe that means opening up your kitchen and feeding more people. Maybe that means going into schools and helping people with the skills so that they can settle their minds and have less anxiety. Going into communities that are underprivileged and offering what you can offer so that we change the conditions that are giving rise to so many underprivileged kids going to prison. So we're working with the conditions and this is possible.